BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's been a week and I've been thinking a lot about ding dong songs because, you know, we talked about Sister Ray sucking on my ding dong, talk about ding dong, ding dong. Yeah, and I, I actually thought up a couple more ding dong songs, but it's all ding dong scat. It's been a week. <laughs> it's, well, wow. OK, cool. OK, OK. Please, yeah, please yeah, name, name a couple First, more. Ministry. Uh, Jesus built my hot rod. Uh, ding, ding, dang, dong, ding, dong, ding, a nigga, son of a gun. That one, I cool. got that one. Red Hot Chili Peppers got two. Uh, of course they do. <laughs> Anthony Kiedis is very charming, but when it comes to lyrics, go ahead, go ahead. Well, one of them's the sideways ding, dong. Uh, that's from Soul to Squeeze. It's a zang, a zang, a dong, dong, a dang, dumb, a sum, a come, a con, gong, ding. So there's ding and dong, but they're in two different sides of the scat. Okay. And then there's around the world, which is very simple. It's ding, ding, dong, dong, ding, ding, dong, dong, ding, dang. That's ding, dong, dang. Right. So it's a whole different, he's kicked on another level. Why weren't they placeholder lyrics? Or were they placeholder lyrics? You know what? One day we'll do a deep dive. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. In our ding-dong series. (laughs) We'll finally read Scar Tissue beginning to end. We'll find out. Ding, ding, dong, dong, ding, ding, dong, dong, ding, dang. Why that fucking exists. (laughs) Welcome to No Dogs in Space, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And welcome to Patti Smith Part 2. So when we last left Patti Smith, the year was 1971, and she just performed at St. Mark's Church in what many consider to be the opening salvo of the New York City punk scene. But while that performance might have sounded a little shaky to us, the audience was blown away. You should have been there. Yeah. That's what we, can, we keep hearing all the time. You, you just should have been there. Yeah. It was, it was just the, the room was electrifying. Yeah. Now concerning that audience... Patty was facing a tough crowd of so-called luminaries in their respective creative fields, some in the art space, some in literature, and some in rock and roll. On the rock side, you had Danny Fields, the prime mover of the punk scene, Terry Ork, producer of the first single from television, as well as numerous other classic New York City tracks. And, of course, you had the aforementioned Bobby Newworth. On the fancy pants side, though, you had playwright Sam Shepard, who was having an illicit affair with Patty at the time. Legendary beat poet and capital C, capital F, controversial figure, Allen Ginsberg. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a highly influential figure in the New York poetry scene named John Giorno. Now, both sides wanted to get their hands on Patty, and people from the music industry were hurling proposals to record an album 
even though they didn't really have much of an idea of what to actually do with Patty Smith. They just knew that they had to use her somehow. But seeing how Patty was smart enough to know that she had just started her walk down the path of rock and roll and seeing how she had done it shakily at best, if we're being honest, she turned down any and all offers to record an album in 1971. That's right. She was savvy enough to know that, like, I'm a little baby in this mm -hmm. and I need to figure this out and not have someone figure it out for me. Yes, exactly. I mean, she did not reject the idea outright. Her view was that she wasn't going to record anything unless she had the freedom to shape it herself. She didn't want somebody else telling her, hey, this is what you got to do to produce a successful record, A, B, C, and D. She wanted to figure that shit out alone. And indeed, Steve Paul, manager of guitarist Rick Derringer, told Patty that if she wanted to cut a record, she'd need to take the poetry out of her act completely. Yeah, lose it. <laughs> That'll never work. Yeah, lose the poetry, kid. In Patty's words, Steve Paul wanted to make her a leather Liza Minnelli or a Barbara Streisand with attitude. They wanted homeless Barbara Streisand. <laughs> they wanted a, a foul-mouthed, gritty, pansexual Barbara Streisand. Homeless peeing in jars and staying up all night smoking hash and drinking coffee, yearning to come up with the perfect sentence. Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I think I just did it. <laughs> and so, knowing that she didn't yet have enough cachet to do things her way, Patty spent the next couple of years focusing on poetry, releasing three collections respectively titled Seventh Heaven, Kodak, and White. She did not, however, pull out of the music scene completely. See, in the audience at the St. Mark's Poetry Reading was a guy named Sandy Perlman, who was then a journalist for the rock magazine Crawdaddy, in addition to acting as manager for a band called Soft White Underbelly. Terrible name. <laughs> I think the name was also his idea. <laughs> yeah, he had better ideas later on. He, oh my God, yes. Yeah, I mean, later on, he'd be known as like, and I don't know what the fuck you got to do to earn this title, <laughs> but he became known as the Hunter S. Thompson of rock. That's... I'm willing to find that out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. We might do like an extra play on this guy just mm -hmm. to further explore. Like, I just want to know why, how. Absolutely. But, but this is the guy behind Give Him Enough Rope by The Clash. This is the guy who did, you know, the Dictators debut. And he also acted as manager for Black Sabbath from 1979 to 1983. In other words, this dude had taste. But back in 1971, he and Soft White Underbelly were only a rung or two above Patty. They were near equals because these were not rock gods come from on high. These were artists who wanted to grow with another artist. And so sometime after Perlman saw Patty perform at St. Mark's, he asked if she was interested in fronting Soft White Underbelly, an offer that Patty declined. But Perlman still wanted Patty to work with Soft White Underbelly. Specifically, he wanted her to work with the keyboard player, Alan Lanier. Mm. Lanier, Perlman thought, could teach Patty how to frame some of the songs she'd written for herself. And Patty could therefore write songs for Lanier's band. And in fact, some of the songs Patty wrote ended up on a couple of Soft White Underbelly albums. But by the time those albums were released, the band was thankfully going by another name. Oh, God, thank God. <laughs> by then, they were known as Blue Oyster Cult. That's a good change. <laughs> a very good change. Good change. Yeah. Used to be shithouse. <laughs> we always do that joke. <laughs> I've got your rubric scare
married the Warriors. <laughs> Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, great band, but a lot of their songs are very much of that time. Yeah, they really are. But that's, I mean, that's proto-heavy metal, man. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that is the beginnings of the genre. Like, them and Black Sabbath. Like, and that's the cool thing, is that those super metal lyrics, like, career of evil. <laughs> those are co-written by Patti Smith. And I, for one... Jesus fucking Christ, I want to see the alternate universe where Patti Smith is the lead singer of Blue Oyster Cult. I want to see that, too. That must be a great timeline. (laughs) Now, at the same time that Patti Smith was steadily working on her song Smithing, the music scene in New York was on a downswing, although there were certainly musicians in the city who were starting to grasp that something new was on the horizon. The only problem is that they had nowhere to play. But that all changed in 1971 with the opening of the Mercer Art Center. That's right. The Mercer Art Center on 3rd Street and Mercer Street in Manhattan. Don't look for it now. It's long gone. (laughs) It collapsed in 1973. Yep. So it's NYU dorms now. Yep. Right? Yeah. So so I'm telling you it collapsed in 1973, and you're telling me it opened in 1971. Yeah. This this happens a lot with these uh, very historic venues a lot of times they don't last very long. They do not. And so, but let's go back back to 1971, the Mercer Art Center. They was like brand new multimedia space for off-Broadway shows. So it was basically meant to be the downtown version of like Lincoln Center, but like a little more funky, right? Yeah. Like, that, that was, <laughs> funky. You know, yeah, exactly. Like a, a lot of that, a lot of that. It's very, uh, very hip. And, you know, and it had, it was a huge space. It had five theaters, like just holding like 200, 300 seats each room. They had like electronic music, film and video installations, particularly in a room called The Kitchen. Mm -hmm. Lots of fun experimental shit going down there. And back then you could actually go see Lamont Young and, you know, Marion Zazila, his partner, play there in the kitchen, literally droning on and on and on. (laughs) I mean, that would have been cool to see. It would have been amazing to see. I love that. And so Eric Emerson, remember him? He was part of the whole Warhol scene. We talked about him in the Velvet Underground series. Yeah. He was the reason why the Velvet Underground Velvet Underground debut like kind of tanked because his picture was on the back cover of the Velvet Underground's first LP. And then he made a whole big fucking stink about it. So all of the albums had to come out of the stores so they could put a fucking sticker over Eric Emerson's photo. And they went back out again, fucked up the entire momentum <laughs> yeah. of the album. He is... Almost a vi- he would be a villain in history if not for this. Well, the thing, yes, you're right. He did sue for beer money because <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> you're right. But the thing is, Eric, Eric, there's a lot more to him. There is. You know, he, he's, he's got layers. Yeah, right? and he's, I, got, I, he's an onion. Yeah, <laughs> I learned this. You taught me this. Uh, this He redeems himself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because well, he was lead singer of a band called the Magic Tramps, who are like this experimental underground, part cabaret, part rock and roll group, kind of... Um, taking from a lot of the glitter rock from uh, from England, because that's kind of where it was coming from, and eventually making its way to New York. So Eric Emerson, trying to find a space for his band, The Magic Tramps, to play, offered to help fix up the new Mercer Arts Center in exchange for rehearsal space as well, because apparently he was pretty good with carpentry. He had a hammer. <laughs> he really did. So they, of course, the Magic Tramps, they started playing shows down there and they, in the Blue Room, because remember, there's several rooms. And you know who else was booked in the Blue Room? Who? Charles Mingus. No yeah. shit. He had a weekly residency there for a month in the summer of 1972. Oh my God. Now that album, uh, Let My Children Hear Music, is like on constant rotation for me right now. I'm in a, I'm in a Mingus I hole. Know, I know, I know. This is why I, I found <laughs> a flyer and I was like, I got to tell you about that's that. That's so cool. Yes. And which actually that summer in 1972 was the same time that this brand new band called the New York Dolls 
started playing there, or as the village voice billed them, the Dolls of New York. <laughs> Hit it. Okay, so the New York Dolls, named after a doll hospital that they would pass on the street. <laughs> doll hospital. Okay. Sound, no, it's true. <laughs> it is true. It is, And it sounds adorable. Yeah. But the thing, though, even though it does it sound... It sounds haunted. It sounds terrifying. I think it's cute. <laughs> Would you like to go down to the doll hospital? <laughs> So the New York Dolls, <laughs> they they were, oh my God, they were badass rocking guys who dressed in drag, wore makeup, and played their music loud. Influenced by like Stooges, MC5, T Rex, Alice Cooper, yeah. Stones, put them all in a blender. You got the Dolls in New York, baby. Yeah, that's what they were. They were exciting to see. And so the Dolls, as we call them, we call them the Dolls. They started their band by moving in together at a loft downtown on 119 Christie Street and throwing rent parties which, by the way, is two blocks away from the Beastie Boys apartment that was on 59 Christie Street. The one with the asphalt floor. Yes, yeah. that's the one. The one where everyone saw Mike D's taint <laughs> because the bathtub was in the middle of the room. And so he would take a bath in there. Anyway, <laughs> it's check an, out it, Beastie Boys here. It's yes. a New York thing. The last two apartments that me and Carolina have lived in have had the bathroom in the kitchen. Yes, yeah. that is true. Actually, <laughs> I, it's something to do with the pipes or something. With yeah. Living in old buildings. Yeah. Anyway, so the dolls, they would throw rent parties, meaning they'd put on a show, play in their kitchen to the people in their living room and charge $2 a person so they could pay rent. You can call them loft parties or rent parties. That's how they a lot of them started. Basically, if you can't get booked anywhere else, you do it out of your own living room. Mm -hmm. But their luck changed when their buddy Eric Emerson said, hey, you want to open for us at this new place called the Mercer Art Center? It's like, do we? Yeah. Does a doll need a hospital? <laughs> yes. The answer is always yes. Always yes. So yeah. the New York Dolls, they played the Mercer Art Center and they killed it. Their live shows were always exciting. As I said, like, are they technically proficient in their instruments? Hell no. <laughs> but they're relying on attitude and instinct. And that's that's the fucking exciting part of it. So the Dolls, they're doing great. And before they knew it, they were headlining at the bigger rooms at the Mercer, like the Oscar Wilde Room and the O'Casey Theater. And on one of those nights, opening for them was who else but Patti Smith. Yeah. Which was no walk in the park for her. That's a hard open, man. Because she's up there alone. She's reading her poetry from sheets of paper. She's dropping them. You know, they didn't even give her a microphone. <laughs> so she had to perform for an audience who just want to see like balls to the wall rock and roll band, right? Yeah. That's going to be a challenge. And especially for women performers, you're opening yourself up to a whole can of misogyny worms. Oh, it sucks. No, believe me. This is a mom spaghetti type situation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so Patty, she would get heckled by the audience members while she recited her poetry and some Sometimes she'd bring out a little toy piano, which didn't help matters. <laughs> and then, or sometimes use a megaphone. Okay, good. She had some sort of amplifier. And then dealing with a hostile audience that are yelling things like, get off the stage or get in the kitchen, mm. like a bunch of cliches, right? But remember, Patty is New Jersey tough. Yeah. She's slinging it right back at them. Yeah. She's making them laugh. Like, like 
like Bill Burr in front of an unruly crowd in Philadelphia. Yeah. Or let's say like anyone in front of an unruly crowd in Philadelphia. <laughs> Believe me, I went to college there. <laughs> so and Patty, she's getting them to come around slowly and then ends up with an improvised version of Piss Factory. You know, with the one we talked about in part one, mm-hmm. the working man's blues, which more often than not would win over the audience because they were all like, hell yeah. Yeah. We all came from somewhere, too. Yeah. But it was these shows and other bar shows, which we call ambush shows <laughs> in the state of comedy business, yeah. where a bunch of locals and regulars have no idea what they're in store for. And man, it's always awkward. Yeah. Also known as an ah fuck show because every fucking person in the bar goes, ah, fuck. When they- <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ah, now I got to go to the back if I want to talk to my friend. Yeah. Um, uh, so, Patty, she's having to deal with that. Everyone, we all had to do that. But because of that, she's learning the art of improv. Yeah. Yes. Got Give me to. an occupation. That's right. <laughs> uh, of just improvisation, really, of going with the flow and making changes as you gauge the audience's reaction. And by God, never falter, never apologize, and sometimes never come back. <laughs> <laughs> there has been times I, I, I would make like a, I don't know, like a food poisoning or something. Just never come back. <laughs> and this is a lesson Patty Smith learned from, as we said before, her one-time lover, Sam Shepard. Yep. Now, Sam Shepard influenced Patty Smith in some extremely consequential ways, from small nudges in the right direction to outright fucking education. See, in the early 70s, Shepard was a playwright of great underground renown on his way towards mainstream respectability. Eventually, he'd go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for his play Buried Child. And this is a fucking weird one. He would eventually get a Best Supporting Actor nomination for his portrayal of Chuck Yeager in the fucking Air Force movie, The Right Stuff. I haven't seen that movie yet. I yeah. really want to see it. Yeah. And yes, you know what? I kind of believe it because I've seen, I've read a couple of his plays. They're fantastic. I, I, I told you the other day, I myself was wondering, like, how do you win a Pulitzer? You know, <laughs> just curious. Just want to see. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like, is it like a vote or God? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what? He, he is definitely deserving of one. Yes. But when Patty Smith was introduced to Sam Shepard by Todd Rundgren, of all people, because Patty was actually dating Todd Rundgren yeah. at the time. Good for her. So yeah. did Bob Dylan. So did everyone else. Good for her. Sam was also playing drums for a sometimes overlooked New York psychedelic folk oh, band. Bob Dylan was not dating Todd Rundgren. <laughs> Sorry. You know what I mean. I'm just saying, like, she dated around. She yeah. had a fun time. You know? Yeah, okay. he had a great right. time. Yeah, yeah. 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 Continue. <laughs> sometimes overlooked New York psychedelic folk band called the Holy Modal Rounders. In fact, the Rounders were the first band to ever use the term psychedelic in a 1964 song called Hesitation Blues. I must hesitate. It's a D for dreadnought, a D for destiny, a D for new G that made a fool of me. Tell me how long I do I have to wait? Or can I get you now? I must hesitate. I 
can picture that room and I like it. Yeah. Oh, now to the country. That's where I want to go. It's that same fucking, <laughs> it's that same melody. Uh, the uh, actual, the, the guy that was singing and the dude playing the fiddle, that's uh, Peter Stamfel. Uh, I've actually played a couple of shows with Peter Stamfel here in New York City. He still like plays around uh, and he's a fucking amazing dude. I actually, like the night that I opened for, the night Cowman opened for him once, it was one of the best shows I've actually ever seen in New York City. Just fucking Peter on stage by himself in his fucking 70s, still killing it. Yes, yes, very much killing it. Yeah. But as far as Sam Shepard's contributions to Patty's career went, Shepard was supposedly the person, as Carolina said, who nudged Patty Smith towards Lenny Kay, or at the very least was the one who said, hey, put some fucking music in there. But concerning performance, Shepard taught Patty the art of improvisation during a short period of collaboration and romance. Yes, he encouraged her to like, be like, if you're feeling it, just do it. Yeah. You know, just just like, don't worry, I'll bail you out. If you see a window, you want to kick it in, you kick it in. I, I don't know if he meant that literally, but it works <laughs> great as a metaphor because basically Sam was appealing to her inner instinct. You know, you got to tap into that instinct and just go with it. So Sam told her, let's write a play together about two characters. I'll be one, I'll write my lines, and then you'll write your lines. So they were kind of like sitting on a bed at the Chelsea Hotel, passing this typewriter back and forth, just typing in it furiously. And at one point, Patty was like, I don't know what to do next. Like, what if I like mess this up? Like, I, well, what if I say the wrong thing? Yeah. And Sam just told her, it's easy. None of this has to be complicated. It's like drumming. If you miss a beat, just create another and just keep going. So together they wrote Cowboy Mouth, a fun and surreal story of a kidnapper taking this guy hostage because she believes rock and roll needs a new savior, a, a Jesus type with a cowboy mouth. Let's call it Cowboy Mouth, basically. <laughs> it's yeah. a great fucking title. There, there's a whole thing. It kind of starts out really strange. And then there's a really great monologue by Patti Smith. And then they did some songs. Uh, you can find it on sam-shepherd.com. Uh, it, it's pretty interesting. And as I said, the play had a few songs that they wrote together, which got Patti more and more interested in writing songs like real songwriting now like Sam even got her a guitar so she could play around with it and try to actually write songs but right now she's getting her head together right with uh with the guitar that Sam gave her she's working on it they perform Cowboy Mouth like twice but then Sam Shepard leaves Patty and New York City because oh god I'm married with a kid <laughs> this is not a good idea <laughs> oh fuck dude I got some fucking kids oh shit bro I, 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 get the fuck out of here no he fucked off real yes, fast yes <laughs> he it was, fucked it was, off out of it town it was very straight yeah the whole thing um uh, they, they ended up friends yeah. in the end, but it was just a whole thing. It's it was the 70s. Thing. Yeah. It was a whole thing. Yeah. So Patty, but she continues on. She continues on to perform poetry at bars and at the Mercer and really work on her stage presence. And so within just a couple of years, her performances are elevated from like the ums and ahs of her show. Like, you, not mine. I forgot my paper. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All those things. Like, did you get my paper? You know, can you get in the trunk of the car? Yes, I, no, I parked behind the, the thing. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like she's, tr she's finally getting it more together. She's reading a poem from her paper. She's crumpling it up. She's throwing it behind her. She doesn't give a fuck anymore. She's reading another poem and then picking up a chair and throwing it across the room, smashing another chair against this wall. Now she's going balls to the wall. Yeah. And so Joey Ramone, who was actually there at one of the shows at Kenny's Castaways, thought, what a woman. Wow. She looks, first of all, just like me. And, and and just everything about this is insane. Like he was very impressed with her. There's a really great quote about it on uh, Please Kill Me. You should check that out. So Patty, she, you know, as we said, she was working this alone or sometimes accompanied by someone until 
November 10th, 1973, when Patty asks Lenny Kay, hey, you want to play with me again? I'm headlining my own show called Rock and Rimbo. And Lenny's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, that's what he does. He's, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, fuck it. Okay, does sure. a doll need a hospital? You know? <laughs> yeah. And off into the sunset they go. Yeah. And this is two years after that performance at St. Mark's Place. Now, as Patti Smith and Lenny Kay performed together as a duo more and more, Lenny began to transition from a sometimes collaborator to a full partner, the sort of person that Patti could use to help realize her own creative vision. See, Patti Smith certainly wasn't a dictator, even though her later nickname amongst the Patti Smith group would be the Field Marshal. I see that, though. She's kind of the leader of the pack, you know, the Lost Boys. Yeah, that is to say there was a reason why it was called the Patty Smith Group. But as Patty had maintained when she was offered record deals after the performance at St. Mark's, the only way she'd fully embrace rock and roll was if she was able to do it on her own terms. Hence, Lenny Kay. In Lenny, Patty found someone who would not only follow, but contribute. See, Kay introduced something to Patty's creative repertoire that they would call three chords merged with the power of the word. Basically, this involved Lenny playing garage rock chord progressions over and over again while Patty improvised poetry on top. This was actually a natural evolution for Lenny Kay, and not just because he'd been a garage rock musician in the 60s. See, Lenny Kay had been hired at Elektra Records after the St. Mark's performance as a talent scout because Lenny had, as a music critic, written a number of nice notices about the Stooges. Because they rock. Yeah, they rock. And they were a new band at the time and there weren't a lot of nice notices outside of Lenny Kay and Lester Banks. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> they did, the, oh, man, England had done some horrible things to say. Really bad. But, of course, Melody Maker is wrong on everything. Oh, boy. <laughs> but after Lenny wasn't able to find anything that tickled Electra's fancy, he was put on another project. Instead of finding the band of the future, Electra tasked Lenny with making a compilation of garage rock tunes from the recent past. By the end of it, Lenny Kay had put together a double LP of original artifacts from the garage <laughs> rock era called Nuggets. You both made your bed and now you're gonna have to sleep there. Old man blues is going to try to find you everywhere. Don't look back. You better not look now. Or he'll catch you. You gotta keep running. Running till the end of time. Oh, yeah. If you both have faith, you'll find a sunny day. Some strange ideas on how life should be lived and things should be done. But I'm here to say you gotta do just what you want. And when they start of their talk, talk, talking, remember just one thing. 
I like that. Yeah. That's cool. Oh, uh, yeah. So Lenny was tasked with, you know, putting it together because I think it was, remember, Jack Holtzman, the president of Elektra, he uh, he asked Lenny, he's like, hey, can you find like cool songs that like maybe like there's a band and there's a whole album, but like one song really stands out. Like, can you do that for me? And Lenny thinks it's because Jack Holtzman just got a like one of those cassette recorder things. Mm-hmm. And he's like, can you make me a mixtape? <laughs> Is essentially how this ended up. It, it just made a big. Uh, it was a whole big fuss. Yeah, uh, I mean, this guy. This is this is the one. It had nighttime by the Strange Loves. Nobody but me by the Human Beings. It had fucking. You're gonna miss me by the Thirteenth Floor Elevators. It could be argued that this out compilation was why the Thirteenth Floor Elevators weren't fucking forgotten. You know why? Make me a mixtape. Yeah. That's it. He just made him a mixtape. Yeah. I mean, this is in essence the spiritual foundations of punk rock. The liner notes written by Lenny Kay himself contain the first known use of the term punk rock. These were songs by bands, as he said. These weren't necessarily like one hit wonders. Some of them were hits, but for the most part, it's just bands that had one or two fucking amazing songs that did not need to be lost. And Lenny Kay, he just wanted to put together a collection to share these songs. He wasn't just showing off. And that's the thing is that Lenny Kay is a collaborator. That's his whole thing. This is a, I mean, it's a collaboration with history, if you will. So armed with possibly the most extensive knowledge of garage rock in existence at the time, Lenny and Patty adapted the nugget style with their so-called three chords merged with the power of the word. Eventually, that concept of merging garage rock with poetry would evolve into seminal Patty Smith tracks like Land. The waves were coming in like Arabian stallions gradually lapping into seahorses. He picked up the blade and he pressed it against his smooth throat spoon and let it dip in the veins. Dip in to the sea, to the sea of possibilities. Dip in. It started hardening in my hand. To the sea. And I felt the arrows possibilities. I put my hand inside his cranium. Oh, we had such a brainiac no more. But no more. No more. I gotta move from my mind to the air. Oh, oh, oh. Gotta go and do the what you see. Yeah, do the what you see. And you totally redeem yourself. Always, always love that song. I love it. It, it, You know, she was influenced by William Burroughs. You know, she read The Wild Boys and and then later became friends with William Burroughs. And he would come to CBGB's and watch them like perform on stage. Like they would bring out a chair for him to sit up front and he'd just sit there crossing his legs, like just tapping his toe. Like, I can't imagine what that's like. I know. Just like a performing basically just for William S. Burroughs. It's fucking insane. There was no one else around. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that song, like musically, I mean, basically it's just combining the seeds with the doors. Uh, It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's so simple. (laughs) It doesn't have to be that complicated, remember? Yeah. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide 
at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So at this point, early 1974, Patty and Lenny are moving more and more towards music rather than spoken word accompanied by guitar, right? Mm -hmm. It's coming together organically, like you said before. And soon enough, they want to explore this with a rhythm section. Let's get ourselves a piano player. So they hold auditions all day and no one is working out until Danny Fields, oh God, the best introducer of all time, (laughs) suggests they try out this guy that he's been dating, a talented musician named Richard Soule. So in walks the most adorable 19-year-old keyboardist dressed in a full sailor suit with long, (laughs) bouncy, blonde curls. (laughs) Patty and Lenny then immediately name him DNV for Death in Venice Mm -hmm. because he looked a lot like the kid Tadzio in the movie. I didn't watch the movie, but I Google imaged it. And to me, I'm just picturing Shirley Temple in drag, (laughs) you know, or Bugs Bunny in the whole thing with a lollipop or something. Uh, Actually, I really, I looked at the picture of Richard Soule. What an attractive man. Okay. Um, he looks like all three Hanson brothers in one. It's cute. It's cute. So Adorable. Richard Stoll. So Richard Stoll. I know. I do. Him. I now can't fucking picture him without a lollipop. <laughs> no, right? I can't help it either. So Richard, he stands there at the audition, like I'm beautiful, and I know it. And we're like, yes, we're all applauding you, actually. Yeah. But he's like, I can also play the shit out of that piano over there. And you know what? It's true. Yeah. The boy could play. He was classically trained and confident about it, but not too much to be a dick about it. Mm -hmm. Like he could play Mozart or the blues or just hit the same three chords for 20 minutes while Patty chanted over and over again in the dreamlike haze. It's all the same to him. It's music, baby. And he loves making it. So great. Now they're a trio and rehearsing at a place in Times Square that Patty's friend and manager Jane Friedman got for them. Really, she just, oh, well, she let them borrow her office or like a room in her office because Jane Friedman, she's actually very important. Extremely so. Yes. She was a partner in the PR firm called War Talk Concern, right? And she had big clients like Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Wonder, Frank Zappa, later John Cale. There's so many people, television. Jane did the PR for Woodstock, the Woodstock. Jesus. 1969. Apparently she got the word out. You know, she really did. So she was very well connected and a fan of Patty's work since day one uh, and also a good friend. So she was the one who booked Patty in all those Mercer Arts Center shows and helped sell Patty's poetry books out of a shopping bag. Like at every show, she'd be like, I got merch. Like she'd sell them for a dollar a piece. Yeah. I went on eBay the other day. You know how much those cost now? 2000 Actually, yes. Uh, um, uh, $1,600. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, that's... Anyway, so Jane, I, just, I hate uh, it when people do that. No, I did no. like, you, Could you lowball me a little bit? No, I just, at this point, I like know my rock and roll memorabilia. <laughs> yeah, I know how much... That's true. You yeah, are a collector. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> that's much better than poor Natalie has to deal with Henry's Bigfoot memorabilia or whatever random shit. Like, this is a monkey's paw. It's like, no, it's not. You know, there's a tag 
got it. <laughs> love them. Love them. Love them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Jane, as Patty's manager, is booking them into music venues now. I mean, also cabaret shows, you know, opening for Hollywood Land and Reno Sweeney's. I mean, they're still kind of, I guess the Patty Smith group, they're still in this experimental, we're not sure what this is quite yet, but we're not going to worry about it and just let it happen phase of the group. Yeah. But it's definitely music and it's definitely going to be rock and roll. They're just going for it, Matt. Yeah, they are. And it's it's sloppy at this point. It's loose, but they're figuring it out. You know, there's no reason to get tight just yeah. yet. Now, even though the fledgling trio that would become the Patti Smith group were gaining a following of at least a few hundred people, people were fucking, especially once Richard Soul joined, people got into it. There really wasn't a place where they could set down roots because the Mercer Art Center had, of course, fatally collapsed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was horrible. It, it, it collapsed. Like a lot of people were in the building. Unfortunately, four people died. Yeah. Uh, and, and the magic champs and all them, they like some of them had to just like run out. Yeah. It was big, big news at that time. Yeah. There's a reason why building codes exist. Let's just say that. Yes. But furthermore, there weren't a whole lot of bands that matched the energy of Patti Smith's poetic performance art mixed with Lenny Kay and Richard Soule's style. See, the other two punk originators in the city, the New York Dolls and Suicide, yeah. they were either too rock and roll or too experimental. And both were more focused on their onstage performances or the sounds they could make rather than the words they were saying. There wasn't a lot of importance behind Ghost Rider Motorcycle Hero. It sounded great, but it was more about the sound, the performance. Alan Vega with a fucking motorcycle chain. Yeah. Listen to our Suicide series for more on that. But there were rumblings about a relatively new venue down in the Bowery that Patty had heard about from another poet she'd met a few years earlier. By 1974, that poet had renamed himself after Rimbaud's poem, Seasons in Hell. Instead of Richard Myers, this poet was now going by Richard Hell. Whoa, oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. This is crazy. First of all, I read in Richard Hell's book, he, he didn't say it was because of Seasons in Hell, uh, although it might have been, but he just said it's because it was short, it was to the point, assertive, but not negative, but still very cool and vague. Yeah. And also, by the way, this is so crazy. And I, I, I'm, I'm, we've both been like telling everyone, we met Richard Hell last night Yeah, we yeah, were like at a poetry beaming. reading. Yeah. And, and then it, it, we did the whole thing like, sorry to bother you and everything. It was like, you know, and I tried to talk to him, but unfortunately, I think he has tinnitus or something <laughs> because he could not hear anything I said because you kept trying to, you, you know. I, uh, I, my voice is much deeper, so mine carries. But yeah, I was having to I translate. Know, I forgot about that when it's when there's a loud place with lots of like loud music and stuff um, that women's voices get, a, you know, when you can hear women get shrill because they talk in a higher range yeah. when you're not supposed to. Like, I, I forgot that. Like, I spent so many years, like, going to bars going like... Roman Coke, please, because that's the only way they can hear you. Okay, girls, yeah. remember that. Talk lower. It will go further because it did not get to Richard Hell's ears. No, it didn't. But it was really cool. He was really great. And my God, his poetry is amazing. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it was great to see him. Like he read some new poems that he had written during lockdown and they were fantastic. He read one. So good. He read one about uh, seeing uh, dead friends and dreams. That was it fucking got me. It, it, it hit me real fucking hard. And I yeah. think he's actually going to be releasing a new book. Uh, here pretty soon with some of those poems in it. So if you, once he's once it comes out, fucking get it because if it's anything like the poems that he read last night, it's gonna be fantastic. Yeah. Well, as it just so happened, back in 1974, Richard Hell was playing bass for a band with a bunch of dudes who also had a poetic slant. This band included a guy named Thomas Miller who had taken the last name of another poet. He was now going 
by Tom Verlaine. Yeah. Richard Hell gave him that name Verlaine mm -hmm. because it also sounded cool, too. And he also said, I know what it alludes to, Hell and Verlaine. Yeah. But, you know, we're roommates. Who cares? I don't <laughs> we, we, do, we, do, we write poetry together. Yeah, That's for, fine. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, uh, Verlaine and Rimbo were in a romantic relationship long ago. Which is actually parallels very well to their relationship, although their relationship was platonic. Uh, but... There are a lot of similarities that Richard Hell can't help but describe in his book of how their relationship ended. Yeah. Well, that band who played their first gig in March of 1974 was, of course, television. Heard here as they sounded then in a rehearsal from that year. Rough and dirty with Richard Hell still playing bass. This is new stuff that just recently came out, right? Yeah. This is awesome. Check it out. <laughs> I love it. I love it. it. It's got legs. It does. Check out Marquee Moon if you want to see the final draft. <laughs> yeah, that was Venus. You know, yeah. that, that was the only song from those rehearsals that later ended up on Marquee Moon, the, uh, one of the only two albums that were released by television, of course, after Richard Hell already left the band and started Richard Hell and the Voidoids. But let's listen to the final draft because yeah. you listen to it, it sounds like shit I mean it's very loose well we gotta tell you why it's so good yeah, you know why television's so great here we go Everything's going to turn out fine, as you can see. <laughs> Top three favorite albums. You never heard Marquee Moon beginning to end. I can do it as soon as you finish with this episode. And so less than a month after television's first gig in March of 1974, Richard Hell invited Patti Smith and Lenny Kay to come downtown to see television play at some shithole in the Bowery that was usually frequented more by members of the Hell's Angels, who filtered in from their Manhattan headquarters down the street which I think closed like 
two years ago. It was there for a long time. Oh, the Hells time. Angels chapter Yeah, the down Hells there? Angels headquarters. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. But television. Where are they now? <laughs> Akron? <laughs> no, I'm not going to ask. Yeah, probably in the upstate somewhere. Oh, gotcha. yeah, oh yeah. right, right. Okay, yeah, they, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. But television had somehow convinced the owner of this shithole, Haley Crystal, <laughs> to let them play Sunday nights at his bar, which had recently been renamed from Hilly's on the Bowery to CBGB. Oh, there we go. There Co we go. Uh, country, bluegrass, and blues. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the television hadn't been the first offbeat band to play CBGBs. Max's Kansas City DJ, Jane County, very loudly claims that her band Queen Elizabeth was the first punkish band of that generation to play the stage, long before anyone else. She's right. Yeah. But as the old saying about trees and forests go, it wasn't until television played CBGB for the first time with Patti Smith and Lenny Kay in the audience that the scene to come finally began to coalesce. Yeah, they were slowly starting to, you know, through word of mouth, basically, yeah. slowly starting to come to these things. Yeah. So on the night that Patty and Lenny saw television for the first time, it was Easter Sunday. And that night, Patty and Lenny had first gone to the glitzy Ziegfeld Theater to see the premiere of the concert film, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones, which Lenny was covering for Hit Parader magazine as a journalist. But from the posh, manicured lobby of the Ziegfeld in Midtown, Patty and Lenny took a car south to the trash can fired laden streets of the Bowery where things were suddenly very real. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was very real down there. Yeah. See, back then, the Bowery was gritty. It was lined with stripped out cars. It was a highly dangerous place where one could easily get knifed in the back if you weren't paying attention. Junkies laid out on the street. It had been said that uh, there'd usually be at least one junkie laying face down right in front of the door or down the block with just his one hand outstretched pointing towards CBGB because this is a guy who's lost his whole life to drugs and on the street and estranged from his family. But one thing he can't deal with anymore are tourists asking for directions <laughs> for where CBGB's is. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> But that night, in CBGB, amidst the cracking of pool balls, the loud conversations of bikers who couldn't care less, and the smell of dog shit from Hilly Crystal's incontinent Saluki, Patty Smith... He's not incontinent. He just shits everywhere. <laughs> no, I read that he was incontinent. Oh, really? He, how, how do you... Do you shit while you walk? Or? Yeah, yeah, just shitting while you, you're just shitting whenever. <laughs> it's just you got no control over when you're shitting. It's just plopping out. Yeah, the, the dog Jonathan. Yeah. This is the kind of deep dive that you guys came here for. <laughs> yeah, remember? The, yeah, that's the thing to remember about uh, CBGB in the early days. It smelled like dog shit because there was dog shit everywhere. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like oh, this smells like dog shit. No, it smelled like actual dog shit. Now, Patty Smith was also working as a rock journalist at this time, and in fact, wrote some of television's earliest press. Besides commenting on the obvious poetic bent of songs like Venus and Marquee Moon, Smith wrote that Tom Verlaine's guitar was the sound of a thousand bluebirds screaming, which is the best fucking description of television I've ever heard. It is a really great line, but I also heard her say that about Lenny Kay's playing in another like magazine. She's just like, this is just a great line. It is a great she said, line. She said the thousand uh, birds screaming. Yeah. And, but you know what? Take it. Use it. Yeah. Good. That's, that's what writers do. You know, yeah. you steal from yourself. Yeah, you can. In other words, television inspired Patti Smith, partly because they'd come upon the idea of combining rock with poetry completely independently of Patti. Tells you you're on the right path. But most consequently, seeing television made Patty, Lenny, and Richard wonder how their live show might translate to a record. So for an experiment, 
They booked time at Electric Lady Studios near Washington Square Park, which had been founded by Jimi Hendrix just before he died. Down the street, you can hear a scream, you're a disgrace, as she slams the door in his drunken face. And now he stands outside, and all the neighbors start to gossip and drool. He cries, oh girl, you must be mad. What happened to the sweet love you and me had? Against the door he leans and starts a scene, and his tears fall and burn and garden green. And so castles made of sand fall in the sea eventually. God damn. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yes. So Jimi Hendrix, he built the studio Electric Lady because his producer thought Jimmy was spending way too much money on recording sessions. And when Jimmy said one day, hey, I want to buy this nightclub downtown and maybe I could put in like a small little eight track recording room in it. And his producer, Eddie Kramer, was like, are you fucking nuts? <laughs> you spend three hundred thousand dollars a year in recording fees. Why don't you just make the whole thing a recording room? <laughs> so yeah. Jimmy said, great idea. That's my idea now. Yeah. Yeah. I dig. So they, they they actually built it custom made to Jimi Hendrix specifications. Like it had state of the art equipment, a huge space for the control room and console because the artist can be the producer. The producer can be the artist and an unusually shaped ceiling. And get you're going to like this one, Marcus. Mood lighting. Oh, I love mood lighting. I know. We have it in our house. It's weird. <laughs> I, I don't know why I have to try to open up my phone and open up an app just to change the lights. Oh, you love it. <laughs> <laughs> I just ask you to do it. I don't even know where the light switch is anymore. <laughs> so Jimi Hendrix, he was the first or at least one of the first artists in the world to purposely build their own recording studio. So this is big. And so on August 26, 1970, they have this big launch party to unveil the new electric lady studio in Greenwich Village. And right there, sitting on the steps, unsure whether she should go in or not, is, of course, Patti Smith. Yeah, this is about four years before where we're at in the story. Yeah, she got invited because her friend Jane, remember, she was doing publicity for the event. And Patti, as we know, is not shy, but somehow she felt intimidated by by the party and all the famous people there. And while Patti was sitting there on the steps contemplating whether to go in or not, a big door swung open and poof, there was Jimi Hendrix. And he asked her, are you coming in? I, I think he was still holding the door. He, he didn't know what to do. And Patty, she looks up at him and she says, I think so. It's just that parties make me nervous. And you know what Jimi Hendrix said? Me too. Yeah. I love that. I love, I love it. that. He's like, yeah, yeah. The parties make me nervous too. I get it. Like he's trying to relate to her, being really nice to this, this girl with, with the messy hair and he's everything. He's just a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. And then Jimmy actually talked to her for a few minutes. He told Patty his vision for the whole studio. He wanted to gather musicians from all over the world, take them up to Woodstock where they'd sit in a circle, play their instruments all at the same time, which may start out chaotically, but eventually the sound will merge into one common language. And then they would all go down to the studio and record this language of peace and elevate the consciousness of the world. Easy, right? <laughs> Easy. And reasonable as well. Yeah. And Patty was like in awe. She's like, you can do that? Yeah. You can do that. Yes. <laughs> and after a couple of minutes of chatting with her, where Patty said she called him Mr. Hendrix out of awkwardness, <laughs> Jimmy left the party because he had a flight to catch. He was going to go to England, the Isle of Wight Festival. But unfortunately, three weeks later, Jimmy Hendrix would die in London. Yeah. So, I mean, he, yes, he, he joined the 27 Club, mm -hmm. which is, which was a big, it was a big epidemic back then of just 27 year old musicians just all dropping dead, unfortunately, due to many causes. 
And this was the second member of the 27 Club that Patti Smith had a direct interaction with, like within like a two year period. Yes. She also Because <laughs> she also uh, interacted uh, with another artist who we'll get to here in a second. Absolutely. So Jimi Hendrix, he dies in London. He, unfortunately, he didn't get to fulfill his incredibly plausible dream. You know, like, first I wanted to make a nightclub. Then I wanted to bring peace to mankind <laughs> and womankind for all kinds. And then I die. It's <laughs> fucked up, man. It's awful. Okay, so now it's, like you said, it's four years later. And Patti Smith, remembering what Jimmy told her, decided we need to record the single at that studio. And Robert Mablethorpe, remember her ex-boyfriend, former roommate, and a really close good friend, mm-hmm. he always supported Patty's ambitions. He financed the whole thing. He paid like somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500. Because at this point, Robert was in a relationship with a wealthy art collector named Sam Wagstaff. Mm-hmm. So it worked out really well for everybody. So with Lenny Kay producing the single, remember, he had a tiny bit of recording experience, but he was able to do this. They recorded their first single on June 5th, 1974, and then they released it themselves. They pressed 1,500 copies, which is ambitious for a first (laughs) single, but that's great. They're selling them in local record stores and bookstores, mail order, wherever they could, out of a shopping bag. You know, they're out and running now. Now, they are recording artists. Yeah. Now, on side A of the single, you had a cover of the old folk standard, Hey Joe, of course, made famous by Jimi Hendrix in 1967, almost a decade prior. Patty, however, had her own spin and wrote her version mostly from the perspective of newspaper heiress and kidnapping victim Patty Hearst, right in the middle of her whole thing. Yes. <laughs> we can't really get to it. I mean, it's it just because we don't have time, but, it, you know, check out definitely Gorilla, the Taking a Patty Hearst documentary. That's fantastic. Uh, a lot of older people do remember this was a big news where this heiress got kidnapped, you know, by this extremist uh, group, uh, uh, SLA, which really stands for nothing. They stand for nothing. It's a cult (laughs) run by a madman who uses his own extremist views to control people. It's very interesting, though. I know you guys said that you guys are going to cover it on Last Podcast sometime. Yeah, Last Podcast here coming pretty soon. Like, we're going to do a full series on Patty Hearst. So, you know, go check it out there once it comes out for the full story because it's fucking huge. It's such a huge, big story. But, you know, it's basically this girl gets kidnapped and somehow within two months, she's actually robbing banks with the people who kidnapped right. her. Was what know. they call Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. To yeah. a lot of people. So very complicated. It's very complicated. So- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna get into it. So Patty Smith, she wrote a poem or or like more like a meditation on Patty Hearst and that whole thing, right? <laughs> While it was happening. This is real time. She found it interesting enough to kind of present Patty Hearst as someone who's I guess, quote unquote, like liberating herself, Mm -hmm. you know, in a poetic way by grabbing a machine gun, joining this cult, whether it's on her own volition or not. We're not quite sure. But the point of the story is that she's rejecting the oppressive patriarchy and telling her dad off and fitting that in with a murder ballot. Hey, Joe, being a song about a man who killed his adulterous wife and has to run away to Mexico, which is what a lot of murder ballads were about back then. Just killing a woman and saying, oh, woe is me. This is hard on me. Imagine how I feel about this. Let's write a song. So, well, to be fair, most of them did get hung at the end of the song. Most of those murder ballads do end with the guy getting hung. These these are just epic stories, but, man. But, but yes, they're really sad Appalachian tales as well. 
<laughs> and so so she put those two stories together with an intro of her talking to Jimi Hendrix's ghost because she's in the recording studio. It, it's all very interesting. It's electrified. I like it a lot. It's pretty good. I mean, but, you know, to be honest, in Patty's quest to do something different with Hey Joe, uh, the song in the words of author Will Hermes, he had a, a pretty good take on uh, this track in Love Comes to Buildings on Fire. Uh, it's a little too impressed with its own transgression. I mean, it it's good, though. I mean, the more I listen to it, actually, the more I like yeah, it. Yeah, because he... You didn't like it at first. I didn't. And I thought it was okay. And then as I got to know Patty and the whole story more, I appreciated it a lot more. Yeah. I like, I mean, actually, I was like, finally yesterday, something clicked. I don't know what it was, but now it's like, oh, this is pretty good. And that's the thing is that Tom Verlaine plays guitar on this, you know, Tom yeah. Verlaine from television. That alone makes this worth hearing. Uh, so let's uh, check out a clip. But I feel drunk. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I was just thinking about it. I was just thinking gritty pansexual Barbara Streisand. <laughs> yearning. She's yearning. Perfect sentence. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Now, one thing to remember about Patti Smith is that while her fearlessness as an artist did create some brilliant, groundbreaking art, I think the best stuff she ever did pulled more from her personal experience. Because the stuff that sort of faded into the background, like Hey Joe, those are the works that are, you know, ripped from the headlines. <laughs> In her poetry years, for example, she had a poem called Rape. Whoosh. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's like, it's fucking nasty. Yes. I mean, it's written. It's meant to be evocative. It is. It's written from the perspective of Richard Speck, 
the mass murderer, the guy who fucking murdered nine nurses in a night in Chicago. And she did that poem just a few years after Richard Speck did this. And didn't have the gall to say any kind of trigger warning <laughs> or anything at all. But I, I I do believe that was a different time. It was. I but mean, my but, God. but even then it raised a couple of eyebrows. Oh, like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would have dropped my sandwich. <laughs> but while the cover of Hey Joe is a bit shaky at times, the B-side to the single was Piss Factory, which is still one of the best working class songs ever written precisely because it was directly inspired by Patty's own experiences working on assembly lines before she moved to New York. Piss Factory is a rallying cry for anyone working a menial fucking job below their potential and aspiration. It's a clarion call to tell your bullying co-workers and your indifferent bosses to fuck off so you can live a better life somewhere else doing anything else. It's as applicable to a fucking modern Amazon warehouse today as it was to a 60s textbook factory back then. That's right. But that's all to say, Patti Smith's greatest strength was her ability to take something personal and make it universal. putting your fucking money where your mouth is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, after they self-released the Hey Joe Piss Factory single in November of 1974, the band decided to expand again, and they began auditions for a bass guitarist. For these auditions, the band would do brutal 45-minute long rounds of Gloria, playing it over and over again just to see if the applicant would drop out before they did. G-L-O-R-I-A, Gloria, G-L-O-R-I-A, 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and as it was with the auditions that snagged Richard's soul, most of those who auditioned just didn't fucking get it. One dude who auditioned, in fact, pulled Lenny and Richard aside after the audition and suggested they kick out Patty, saying, quote, she can't sing and she looks like shit. Jeez, Louise, we, we've heard this before with other bands. They're always like, you, you might want to think of getting rid of, you know, Jello Biafra or whatever. <laughs> like, um, no, next, no, next. Always fucking next. Finally, though, Patti Smith found her bassist in an Eastern European Cold War exile named Ivan Kral, who'd been a teenage rock star in his native Czechoslovakia before his family fled the country because the Soviets wanted to kill his dad. That's a good reason. That's a great reason. And it's another. The Ivan Kral story is also fucking nuts. Now, just prior to auditioning for Patti Smith, Kral had been playing with Blondie when Blondie was still transitioning into their final form out of their original form, which was the Stilettos. Yeah, Stilettos, Angel and the Snake, Blondie and the Banzai Babies, and eventually dropped to Blondie. Now back then, Blondie... That's a Jeopardy question. <laughs> back then, Blondie was still pretty much Blondie, but they sounded more like this, a little more raga. I like that. Yeah. Just left gone behind 
I like that song. I like that song. The yeah. final draft of it, I love. Yeah. I, that's what we're going to call them now, final drafts. Yeah. So that song, actually, that demo part that we just heard was recorded in 1975. Uh, of course, Ivan Crawl already left the band by then. But they originally called that song, The Heart of Glass, the disco song. And they apparently they recorded it in a hot and humid basement in Queens, which is why they sound a little out of tune, yeah. they said. Yeah, a little slow. <laughs> it, was like, oh, it was just really hot. It was June. June. My God. So, okay, but a few months back, Blondie had a little bit of uh, personnel issues, right? Yeah. Like I said, their bassist, Ivan Crawl, left the band to join the Patti Smith group. And then their drummer quits to go back to school. So this is a pretty tough time in Blondie's uh, band history. Lead singer Debbie Harry is trying to make ends meet. She's a bikini bartender on nights they don't have gigs. Her boyfriend, guitarist and music director Chris Stein is on welfare. They live in the dumpiest place in town and that's saying a lot for 1970s New York City. Yeah. Alphabet City. Woo. Oh, man. And when they finally get a new drummer, Clem Burke, on the night of his first gig with them, their bassist, Fred Smith, announces he's leaving to join television. To replace Richard Hell. Yes. <laughs> and a spot opened up because Richard Hell left television because he was done with dealing with Tom Verlaine and his ego and also Tom not including Richard's songs and demos and stuff. And the fact that Tom Verlaine and Patti Smith have gotten together, mm -hmm. which made Tom more unbearable. <laughs> and it didn't help that Richard Hell had a big crush on, on Patti, supposedly, but she liked Tom. So Richard Hell says, fuck it. He quits. A week or two later, he gets a call from Johnny Thunder saying, me and Jerry Nolan just quit the New York Dolls. Do you want to start our new band, The Heartbreakers? Does a doll need a hospital? <laughs> yes! A million times yes! So, if we go back a little bit, right? Blondie, they lost their guitarist, their bassist to Patty's band and Patty's boyfriend's band. Mm-hmm. There appears to be some pilfering. This right? is a little bit of pilfering. And rumors and shit talking. Uh, for a while, it was a known thing, this feud between Debbie Harry and Patti Smith. There's even that famous quote where, according to legend, Patti said to Debbie Harry, this town ain't big enough for the two of us or something, or only one woman can rock this town. Or something like something that. Something really stupid. I don't know if Patti actually said that, but Patti at this stage has a bit of a behavior problem. <laughs> <laughs> this is the beginning. I mean, she always has. She's always been... Kind of pain in the ass. Like, <laughs> yes, a, the best of them are. <laughs> I mean, a little bit, but yeah, there there is a at the very least tension between Patty Smith and Debbie Harry. Like I've heard yeah. a, a couple of stories where there, uh, when Blondie was auditioning Clem Burke, uh, Patty Smith like came bopping into the room like she usually did. Like, hey man, I really like your style, <laughs> and that Debbie Harry very sternly says, Patty. I'm working with this guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then he later, <laughs> according to Gary Valentine, who is also in Blondie, mm -hmm. he later, Clem Burke later auditioned for Patti Smith Group, but didn't get it. So he stuck with Blondie. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is nuts, you know. Yeah, Gary Valentine, by the way, real name Gary Lockman, uh, possibly the greatest modern occult writer, which is fucking insane. <laughs> We've used him like four times as a source on last podcast. <laughs> Wrote the definitive Madame Blavatsky biography. He's fucking nuts. I love Gary Lockman. This is a 
a punk scene, right? <laughs> this is a punk scene. These are all yeah. the fucking weirdos all coming together. And of course, they're going to butt heads, you know? And as I said, Patty has a behavior problem. The runaways, remember the runaways? They all said that Patty snubbed them and treated them like shit. Like, like he, she pretty much came in and she said, like, bitches move or bitches yeah. leave. Or <laughs> I think that, leave, that, yeah. that was in Robocop. <laughs> but still, bitches I think leave. she said, yeah. she pretty much said that. Like, she just treated people like crap because Patty was very free with her words and yeah. her behaviors. And it did piss off a lot of people. Yeah. And it didn't help that Blondie was kind of a joke back then. They were least likely to succeed. Yes. And, and not that I'm deifying like Debbie Harry either, but they these were two young 20-something women in a tough city, in a tough scene where rivalry was a common thing. If it was over a guy or a band member or whatever. I mean, men did this too. But I can see from the women's perspective how that kind of nastiness can be attributed to like unhealthy competition and insecurity because they have their walls up. They're like rabbit chihuahuas ready to unleash you know it's a defense mechanism who's going to come out winning and it was something that they thought they needed to do until many years later you know when you grow up and you realize what the hell was the point of that yeah and so now they respect each other from a distance yeah and, and like you said like dudes are also doing this too but people talk of course people talk more about the patty smith debbie harry rivalry even though it's a little overblown because you know it's just rare like people just and like also, that there's, like, not, there's not a lot just, of women people yeah there's not a lot and, of women and rock music at this point either yeah i mean like tom verlaine and richard hell they had their spat too eventually and that is also a big thing yeah. as well <laughs> uh, they pretty much also broke up yeah and so it is it is it's it's going to happen a lot when you have a small scene of a couple hundred people. But as what uh, Debbie Harry said, you know, we, we all were like that. But, you know, if you really needed an amp in a pinch, you just go up. It's like, hey, man, can I borrow that? And then they'll be like, yeah. Here you go. So yeah. at the end of the day, they you're don't... not borrowing my fucking snare drum. That's OK. That's a bit of an inside joke for all you musicians out there. But I you're not borrowing my fucking snare drum. I don't at care. The end Bring of the... your own snare drum. How could you forget your snare drum? At the end of the day, they were on the same side, right? <laughs> they were. They were. Yeah. And, and Patty Smith Group, they kept going since now they have their whole group together. And they started headlining with television at CBGB's. They're doing this every single week for months. That's Lenny Kay. He said, that's when we locked in as a music group because yeah. we had that discipline. We had that room, CBGB's. And then finally, when it grew, we had the audience. And that's the thing is that like this is truly this like television, Patti Smith group, Double Bill, this is when CBGB fucking exploded. This is when people started coming out. This is because, you know, Patti Smith group, they brought in a gang of like 300 people. They had a following. Yeah, yeah. They know? would headline because they they were a huge draw. Because remember, Patti Smith, she she had poetry books. She was well known by the beat writers, mm -hmm. by, by other writers. So, yeah, naturally, they were going to flock over there. Yeah. Now, as Lenny Kay put it in his book, Lightning Striking, well worth the read, by the way. Yes. It's a really fun book. The charm of CBGB was watching bands grow. Indeed, the club worked as much as a practice space as it did a performance outlet. And after playing four shows a week for seven weeks, Patti Smith and her band finally had something worth putting on vinyl. And as it just so happened in April of 1975, the buzz at CBGB was strong enough where legendary record executive Clive Davis came out for a show with Lou Reed in tow. I love it when he, he when he comes to shows. <laughs> I liked it. You know? It was good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder if this is before or after Legs McNeil asked him, do you like hamburgers? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you ask me that? Are you taking my order? Reed had just signed to Davis's new label, Arista, which Davis had started after leaving his position as one of the top executives at Columbia Records. At Columbia, Davis was the dude who'd signed Sly and the Family Stone, Billy Joel, Donovan, Aerosmith, Pink Floyd, and Janis Joplin. 
who had a personal connection to Patti Smith with this song right here. I love that song. I don't care how cliche it is. I love it. And yes, Patti Smith, when she was living at the Chelsea Hotel, uh, she did meet Janis Joplin and she did meet Chris Christopherson and just sat there while Chris Christopherson was like, oh, let me show you how to play this song I wrote. Me and Bobby McGee. Yeah. Although Bobby Newworth also showed Janis Joplin, but he was there also to show them. There was a lot of showing. <laughs> and so Janis Joplin, of course, she loved the song she recorded. Unfortunately, she died after seeing the Angel of Death, Patti Smith. Because <laughs> <laughs> they keep dropping like flies around me. You know? <laughs> but Clive Davis, after signing some of the biggest acts in the history of popular music, he now wanted Patti Smith. And after seeing her just once at CBGB's, he returned with a ridiculous offer of seven albums for $750,000, plus full creative control over all her releases. He didn't want anyone to get her. No. That's pretty much what it was. No, he saw her and he saw, that's a fucking star right there. Yep. And I'm just going to let her go. However, the Patti Smith group was still playing without a drummer. So during a radio concert on WBAI-FM, Patti made a call for the position in the middle of Gloria. But the call was by no means obvious. Instead, it was more of like an improvised ask to the universe, as opposed to cool drummer wanted for rock band. <laughs> yes. Calls 212-753-9163. was sitting around looking at rock and roll show. Telecasters, jazz masters, hiss, cheese, less pause, epiphone, famous, the boys came and went. The one that stayed had a rhythm of his own, but it came from 65 from the Rolling Stones.
I mean, that's that improvising that you were talking about. She's she's just saying whatever's on her mind, you know, like, <laughs> don't forget to pick up milk. You know, like, she will do that. Oh, yeah, we need a drummer. Yes. Don't forget, <laughs> oh, yeah, don't yeah, forget yeah. to pick yeah. up a drummer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but concerning a drummer, the future man on the skins for the Patti Smith group was, in Lenny Kay's words, already there. The drummer was named J.D. Dougherty, and he'd been running sound at CBGB's using parts he'd scabbed together from his home stereo. But more importantly, J.D. had moved to New York not too long before with a bunch of other California transplants who all went to high school together, including one dude named Lance Loud. Cool. Their band was called The Mumps. Nice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. They're part of the whole legend. Yeah, they are. No, that's that fronted by um, the world's first reality TV star. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the first openly gay men um, on TV in all of history. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And within two weeks of Patty making her call on WBAI, J.D., was behind the kit playing for the Patti Smith group, who was together at last. Finally. Yes, I forgot there, there was one more thing. Yeah. We, yes, now, now, we're, now we're complete. Yeah. J.D.'s debut at a space in the village called The Other End, however, was doubly notable for the fact that one of Patty's heroes, Bob Dylan, was in attendance. Yes, Patty Smith. She loves Bob Dylan ever since she was a teenager. Ever since her mother got her a copy of Another Side of Bob Dylan, she was hooked because to her, he was like, Arthur Rimbaud incarnate mm-hmm. in the flesh. Very cool and very, very sexy. Closest you're going to come to Arthur Rim- Rimbaud. Absolutely. And when Patty found out that he had come to watch the Patty Smith group perform live, she said, no one had to tell me. I just felt the electricity. <laughs> and it wasn't the faulty wiring. It was power. She said she felt that power from just from his presence, just from him walking in. Apparently, he is a very uh, he's a presence to behold. Yeah. And after the show, Bob Dylan walked backstage to say hi. And Patty, who's more awkward than you think for someone like her, (laughs) couldn't help but just act super cool when Bob Dylan said, hey, any poets here? And Patty responded with. Eh, poetry sucks. And Patty says she's like, yes, I acted like such a jerk. I don't know what came over me. But really, it was just part of that coolness game that Bob also played. Yeah. Oh, so you read Rimbaud? Yes. In English? Yeah. I read it in French. You know, like that kind of thing. That, that's Bob Dylan saying that. It's like, oh, 
I read it in French. It's like, <laughs> fuck you, Bob Dylan. Like You're awesome. A couple of 20-year-olds at a fucking college radio party. They can't help it. No, they can't. Patty, she described it as in like an energy collision or like a, a cockfight. Two roosters just circling around trying to <laughs> peck at each other or something. Yeah. I don't know. Patty, she got a little full of herself when she mentioned this because oh, yeah. she's just like, oh, look at me, my peer, Bob Dylan. <laughs> Remember, at the time, she just got signed. Uh, she wasn't the Patty Smith yet. So I yeah. just I was just like, OK, you're a little you're a little full of yourself. But you know what? It, I guess that yeah. checks out. I mean, Bob Dylan, by this point, had been Bob Dylan for well over a decade. Yes. But also, you know, remember, they're signed to the same label, Columbia Records. It's not that much of a coincidence. You know, Clive Davis probably like picked up the phone and said, Bob, go check out Patti Smith and, you know, pose for a picture if you watch. Yeah. Right. That I mean, I, that's my speculation. I think I might have read it somewhere because like Patti Smith and Bob Dylan did take a picture together and it, it somehow ended up on the cover of the Village Voice <laughs> the next week. <laughs> then, bam, Patti Smith is a legend. But honestly, I don't think it's all business. I, I know there was a lot more to it that like, they did respect each other a lot. So sometimes it's just for creativity's sake. Sometimes it's business and sometimes it's myth making. Yeah. And that's what that's what they did. Them meeting was important. Yeah. I mean, my favorite part of that story is that like Patty was feeling kind of shitty about it afterwards. Like, how oh, God, why did I fucking act like that? Jesus Christ. Bob Dylan fucking hates me. This sucks. This is awful. And then she saw Bob Dylan was walking down the street. She met Bob Dylan on the street. Bob Dylan had the copy of the village voice with them on the cover and he walks up to her and just goes who are these people <laughs> I know, you so yeah, hey you make you recognize these people who are these people just really cute and, and she's, she's like, like oh, yeah, yeah man yeah that's cool man yeah <laughs> <laughs> i want you to voice all the characters in this new cartoon we're gonna do bob and patty <laughs> they own a bagel shop <laughs> okay spec script we'll, we'll we'll start working on we'll yeah, start working yeah, on yeah. Now, Bob Dylan was obviously interested in Patti Smith. And in fact, he asked her to join him on his Rolling Thunder review tour as one of many revolving singers who would all perform exclusively with the band who would later back Dylan on his 1976 album, Desire. Pistol shots ring out in a barroom night to Betty Valentine from the upper hall. She sees a bartender in a pool of blood. Cries out, my God, they've killed them all. Here comes the story of the hurricane. The man the authorities came to blame for something that he never done. Put in a prison cell, but one time he could have been the champion of the That's one of my <laughs> that's one of my favorite Dylanisms is pool of blood. I love it. Yeah. Now, interestingly, that Rolling Thunder review band was put together 
by Bobby Newworth, mm. one of the first people at the Chelsea Hotel to notice Patti Smith. Patti, however, smartly turned the Rolling Thunder review off her down. She wasn't the only one. Emmylou Harris also turned it down. Now, mostly Patti did it out of loyalty to her own band because her own band wouldn't be allowed on the tour. It would only be her. Yeah. And so she's like, I just put these guys together. Yeah, can't abandon them now. But partly it was a matter of tone and maybe just the tiniest bit of ego. That's right. He's like, oh, well, I'm sorry. I'm busy building my own empire. Sorry. <laughs> well, as Patty put it, if you have an electric chair, man, you don't bring in another electric chair. You bring in somebody to electrocute. <laughs> that oddly makes sense. <laughs> it does. I mean, and while this sounds somewhat egotistical, I think Patty just meant that two poets might be a bit too much. They just, it's going to be another cockfight. Right. You know? Right, and, right, right. Yeah. But, Patty was about to be far too busy to worry about a tour with Bob Dylan. In August of 1975, she and the rest of the Patty Smith group would enter the studio to begin the recording of her debut album. Oh, God! Which is where we'll pick back up next week with a sharp focus on horses. Whoa! Oh, my God. I can't wait. I can't wait. We're just there. We're, we're at the beginning. They're, they're getting buzzed into the studio. Yeah. You know? And we're going to pick that up. On, on part three, yeah. uh, this is three parts, Patty Smith. Uh, we we were like we wanted to keep it a little. Remember, I'm not doing five. Yeah, not doing five, five anymore. No. That's we had to compromise on that with the replacements by doing six parts. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, uh, four point seven five parts, I'd say. Yeah, just about. Yeah. And uh, so with this story, especially with part two, uh, I'd like to like add some extra credits, some yes. extra books, some extra sources that we checked out. The downtown pop underground, New York City, and the literary punks, renegade artists, DIY filmmakers, mad playwrights and rock and roll glitter queens who revolutionize culture by Kembro McLeod. And also Break It Up, Patti Smith's Horses and the Remaking of Rock and Roll by Mark Patris. The New York Dolls, Too Much Too Soon by Nina Antonia. That was this great read. Uh, Lightning Striking by Lenny Kay. Please pick that up. It's solid. I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp by Richard Hell. Fantastic book. I'm almost done with it. I love it. I told Richard Hell how much I loved it. And he said, what? I can't hear you. But I hope he, he knows how much I loved it. Super nice. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. He said he heard of us. Yeah. Which, like that, that was it. I was beaming all night. Well, he said somebody told him on his website. Did you know there's a there's a podcast called No Dogs in Space that is a mishearing of Love Comes in Spurts. That to me made my week. There was a I moment of recognition. I know, like... That's it. That's it. And, yeah. then, and then forever. He'll forget our faces forever. But I loved it. And then there's also Face It by Debbie Harry. Great memoir. And I revisited Suicide No Compromise by David Novak. Love that book. And it was just just kind of give us more of the information on CBGB's Mercer Arts Center and, and all those places. And, you know, with Suicide, because they were also playing alongside in yeah. other rooms where Patti Smith was. Like Alan Vega did say, like, Patti Smith, she's a maniac. She's great. <laughs> and she brought the audiences. We should all be thanking her. I mean, conceivably, there was a night. Conceivably, there might have been a night at the Mercer Arts Center where you walked in and you look to your right. There's Lamont Young playing in that room. You walk through the next room, through the blue room. You're walking through through a suicide performance and you end... You can't leave. Yeah. <laughs> and you end... Well, after walking through the Blue Room, you end at a performance, Patti Smith opening for New York Dolls. Conceivably, that night happened. Yes. And that's fucking insane. I know. They're all in the same place. That's about to 
crumble. <laughs> get out. Get out now. Uh, and of course, if you uh, want to get a No Dogs in Space t-shirt, uh, we got a couple for sale uh, at lastpodcastmerch.com. We just got a reorder of the fucking yellow dog shirt. Sweet. Uh, the, you, the, the rabbit dog one? Yeah, rabbit dog. I yeah. love that shirt. Yes, we got them in men's and women's sizes. Mm-hmm. And definitely check out our Instagram, No Dogs Pod, for any kind of updates and everything. I know it's taken us a long time to get this series out, but now I hope you're not complaining because you're listening to it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for all the kind messages. We we get lots of great messages at nodogsinspace at gmail.com. Everyone's saying like, when's the next series? Or, or people just actually saying, I will quit my job to work for you full time so we can get these episodes out sooner. <laughs> thank you so much for all the offers. Really, really appreciate you guys. We're working as best we can with all the stuff that we have in front of us. And, you know, great new uh, announcement later. Uh, that no one will care about but us. (laughs) Yeah, and of course, in between uh, every series, we put out extra play every other week. Uh, So make sure to check that out for like little extra things um, that we couldn't fit into an episode or just little pieces of music history, little chapters of music history uh, that we're particularly interested in. Yeah, Uh, it's fun. We kind of go a little off the cuff on that one. It's it's all like hastily put together in a really fun way. Like, I I love it. I love it. And if you have a band, if you are a musician, if you make sounds, if you make music, anything, uh, and you want to hear it played, send it to us at nodogsinspace at gmail.com because every episode we play uh, a band that listens to the show uh, and a band that we fucking love. Yes. Make it an MP3, a Spotify link or Bandcamp or whatever whatever you got. Yeah, anything. Uh, and this week we have a band out of Canada, uh, outside of, out of uh, British Columbia. They're called the Perverts. I love this. Yeah. The Perverts. <laughs> perverts. P-U-R-R-B-E-R-T. The Perverts. Beautiful. Uh, this is off of their album, Meet the Perverts. Uh, the song <laughs> That's is... That's also better. That's so... <laughs> this is getting better and better. Yeah, the song's called uh, Whiskey Moon. Uh, they're fucking great. If you if you like the gothic country thing, if you like anything, if you like Nick Cave, yeah. if you like to get real fucking creepy with it. That's what we're about to do. Yeah, you're going to dig it. Uh, so here is Whiskey Moon by the Perverts. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and we shall see y'all for Patty Smith Part 3, the conclusion next week. Fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye.
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.